Hey, good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for having me today. Thanks, Brody, for the introduction and for the invitation. Um, I actually used to live like two blocks from here and have been trying to find an excuse to come and join with you all in worship. So thanks for the excuse to be here this morning. I'm wondering who here has ever found yourself in the rubble of your home? Have you ever been looking at the burned heap from a fire or the collapsed stones from an earthquake? Or maybe some of you have spent time abroad in war zones. We know that there are some images now of houses, of buildings burned down, bombed, raised by the evil forces of war. For me, this moment came walking through the streets of Coffeyville, Kansas, near where I grew up. I was staying with my aunt for a summer in Coffeyville. And the spring before I was there, a supercharged flood crested the local levee at the oil refinery there in town. And 71,000 gallons of crude oil spilled out of that refinery and into the small town. It condemned all of the soil and all of the homes in its scorched earth path. And in the summer after, those scars were all around town. Oil lines, three foot, three foot high on the walls of the houses, X's on the doors condemning them. It was a town in rubble. Looking back, I, I've come to realize that this was my first experience of a climate and ecological disaster. And this is an experience that now many of our friends and families, perhaps many of us, have come to experience directly. This time of year, we're just getting into what I've come to call climate disaster season. And whatever you think about climate change, I think we all can agree that something is changing and these changes are becoming painfully apparent across our country and across our world. We're seeing unusually intense wildfires all across the West, droughts deeper than any we've seen or been able to account for in thousands of years. And for us here in North Carolina, a hurricane season that has just started and is predicted to be another record-breaking one. These disasters that we're seeing, they're increasing both in frequency and in intensity. These so-called natural disasters are increasingly becoming unnatural. They have the fingerprints of climate change all over them. What's happening around us, I've heard referred to not as global warming, but as global weirding, which is the way that climate change is knocking our weather systems out of whack. So that what we're seeing is deeper droughts, hotter heat waves, more ferocious fires and hellish hurricanes. Really all we have to do now is look around to know that climate change is here. And we do know that it's caused by human actions. Because as we send climate warming pollution into the atmosphere from burning fossil fuels, the light sweater that is our atmosphere, keeping us nice and cozy year round, is slowly, slowly becoming a parka. Think about it this way. 
When you go out to your car on a hot day, maybe not today, today's a nice cool day, but say two or three days ago, if you parked your car in the sun and you're inside of the grocery store for an hour, it was 75 or 80 degrees outside, by the time you get to your car and you go inside, you know it's gonna be unbearably hot in there. And if you have leather seats, you're gonna to have to make sure there's not skin to leather contact. Because what's happening there is the greenhouse effect. That sun is able to get in through the windshield, but it has no way to get out. And so it gets trapped inside. And that's what's happening to our planet. Our planet is a car parked in the sun and it's getting increasingly hotter and hotter. And this is what's causing the disasters in many of our communities and around the world. Our world is like a body. And as it heats up, even just by a couple of degrees, one, two, or three degrees, the body is unable to regulate itself. I know this, I know we've all experienced this. At 98.6 degrees, our bodies are very happy. But when we go up to 99, even just 100 degrees, that's less than two degrees higher, we can feel like a pile of rubble. Or as the expression goes, like we've been hit by a train. The body of our world is experiencing a fever, and these disasters are the symptoms. They're reducing our communities, our homes, our earthly home to rubble. In a way, this moment that we find ourselves in is pretty similar to the moment that Nehemiah found himself in over 2,500 years ago. Like Nehemiah, we're standing in the rubble of our home, in the rubble of God's good creation. I know this is your first week taking on Nehemiah, so I want to take a step back here and just tell you a little bit about the book of Nehemiah uh, and the person himself. So, in 586 BCE, nearly a century before Nehemiah was born, Jerusalem was destroyed by the, Babylonian, by the Babylonians. The temple was destroyed, the wall was destroyed, it was completely sacked, and the Jewish people were exiled from these homelands. They were forced by the empire out of their holy city. This is important because Jerusalem wasn't just their home, it was the site of the temple. It was the place on earth where God came to dwell. And so losing their city also meant losing the dwelling place of God. A few decades after the destruction of the city, a more gracious emperor allowed the Jewish exiles to return. And perhaps this sounds familiar from the last few weeks of your series. In Ezra, we read that the Persian king Cyrus sends the Jews back into Jerusalem and we read about the rebuilding of the temple. So the opening of the book of Nehemiah happens about 75 years after that. The Jews are back in Jerusalem, the temple is rebuilt, and yet all is not well in Jerusalem. The walls are still in shambles, the city was partially in ruin. The temple had been rebuilt but without any sort of structures to protect it, the people of Jerusalem were again susceptible to conquest. There was no way to protect that holiest place for them from the, the conquesting forces of empire. 
one of the most interesting things about Nehemiah as a person is that this all didn't affect him directly. He actually wasn't living in Jerusalem during this time. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. He was living in Susa, which was the capital of the Persian Empire, which was nearly 1,500 miles from the city of Jerusalem. He lived a good life. He was secure in his job. He had a kind of a, a charmed life hanging out with the king and the people of the courts. And yet God placed a call on his life to look beyond where he was, to consider the well-being of his broader community. So when Nehemiah heard from his brother about the state of Jerusalem, he could see beyond the rubble that his brother was telling him about. He had vision to see reflected in that rubble the possibility of the restoration of those once magnificent walls of Jerusalem. He had the courage to see the restoration of the Jewish identity in the face of imperial forces that continued to oppose it at every turn. And he had the faith to listen to God and to trust that a future of flourishing was indeed possible, even in the midst of destruction. So Nehemiah asked for release from the king. He took upon the journey 1,500 miles to Jerusalem. And here in our passage from today, we read about him showing up on his single horse, looking to see what he could do to rebuild the walls from the century-old rubble. The story of Nehemiah rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem can be received differently in this era, when walls can be symbols of national strength. They can be designed to protect the so-called right way of life from corruption. And in an awful irony, walls constructed by empires to maintain a way of life are often holding out precisely those forces which the empire has enacted. And this is certainly true when it comes to climate change. What I mean is that as the worst polluters in the world, including the United States, especially the United States, continue pumping these polluting gases into the atmosphere, the more people and animals have to move in order to adapt to changing social, changing political, and changing environmental situations. So the nations that can afford to do so construct walls to keep out all of those creatures, humans and non-humans, that are affected and displaced by climate change. These structures of empire aim to absolve developed countries from responsibility for their role in climate change, as if just by constructing a wall to keep out the effects of climate change will make it all go away. And yet, I think we can all agree that not all walls are bad. Here we are sitting in a beautiful sanctuary with walls adorned with amazing stained glass. Not all walls are evil. Nehemiah's wall is not a wall of empire. These walls are not walls of empire. Nehemiah's wall is a wall designed for people to move in and out of with the gates and openings like we hear in our passage today. And it's a wall not built by the well-funded resources of the empire, but from the rubble, 
by the hands of the people who take up their spades. It's a wall of hospitality, not unlike the walls around us here. Walls intended to promote the flourishing of life both within and outside of its borders. A wall that protects that which is good and whole and peaceful and yet is not isolated from the world. So Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem with a vision for a wall of hospitality. One interesting detail from this passage is that Nehemiah didn't roll in with a cavalcade of animals for work and for war. No, we, we read in this passage that the only animal he took was the one that he rode, just Nehemiah and his horse. And perhaps the reason that he didn't bring a legion of animals to help construct the wall was because he knew that the people of Jerusalem had what they needed to rebuild. There was no need to impose the technical prowess of the empire on the people of Jerusalem, even if it was well-meaning. Perhaps Nehemiah knew that the only wall that would benefit the people was one built by the people. We read in chapter 3, just beyond where we stop today, something really interesting. What we read in this chapter is the author of Nehemiah illustrating the grassroots effort of the people in Jerusalem. And you're welcome to, to follow along with me here if you have your Bible. What the author does here is the author lists out in the 32 verses of that chapter 42 names of people who helped rebuild this wall. 42 names. This entire chapter, it's, it's a testament to the people gathering, working together to repair the wall. Priests and people, rulers and the ruled, all of them working side by side, each making repairs to the wall in their own neighborhood. And just naming a character is a level of notoriety granted to only a few in the entire, in, in all of the Ezra and Nehemiah books. But here we read 42 people who are named by name. So why spend a chapter writing the names of people who worked on rebuilding the wall? Why record all of that detail and share it in these sacred scriptures? Perhaps the author of Nehemiah wants to emphasize that the rebuilding of the wall is not like those walls of empire. It's not built on the backs of oppressed people or slave labor. Listed here aren't the names of technocrats and tyrants who are often found in historical books, who get remembered because of their feats of engineering, but it's the people's work. It was the people who were standing side by side, rebuilding from the rubble of their own neighbors. The people who in the face of threats from all around courageously work with all their heart. Now I wanna take a moment and tell you a story about another hospitable wall. This is a wall found in the homeland of some of the oldest Christian communities in our world, the Ethiopian Orthodox churches. In Ethiopian Orthodox tradition, the proper way for a church to be a church is to be enveloped by a forest. 
The priests of this ancient Orthodox tradition, which is one of the oldest of all of our Christian traditions, recognize that the spiritual possibilities of a church don't arise solely from the interior space, from the small hut at the center where one might encounter God, but through the invitation of creatures to be part of the sacred structure. And it's not the work of human hands alone that builds the sacred structure, but the work of God in partnership with all of God's creation. So what results from this belief and this practice are the church forests of Ethiopia, like we can see here. These forests are ecological arcs of biodiversity in a landscape flooded by deforestation. Seen from above, the church forests are small pockmarks of green, only a few acres in size, in a landscape of brown. The juxtaposition is severe. Circles of lush green trees with domed huts in the center, surrounded by a desertified landscape. And forces of destruction threaten them on all sides. As climate change intensifies, Cattle ranchers are under more and more pressure to find suitable lands to feed their cattle. Often that means they erode the boundaries of these church forests, destroying the, re the revered places of ficus and of juniper. In response to the rubble of deforestation and the impacts of climate change, Orthodox priests and church leaders partnered with a local ecologist in Ethiopia to build a solution, walls around the forest. The idea was to extend the inner wall of the church, that which demarcated the Holy of Holies, to extend it outward so that it encompassed and protected the forest from the forces of destruction all around. Gathering stones from the desertified areas outside the forest Teams of robed priests and bespectacled scientists went about building this three-foot-high wall around the perimeter of the existing forest. The result has been magnificent. Tree regeneration has multiplied. Biodiversity has accelerated. By keeping out the forces of ecological destruction, the wall has made it possible for the expansion of life on the inside, preserving a remnant with the vision that someday these species will have more habitat on the outside to reproduce in. People and animals are invited into this refuge, a place for regeneration of life and of spirit. Both Nehemiah and the ecologist in this story, Dr. Alamayehuwasi, knew something that is true of us here today. We have what we need to respond to climate change. The challenges that face us are not primarily technological ones. They're not primarily scientific ones to be solved by scientists. No, the challenges for us are to build community and to build the solutions here where we are. We know what we need to do. We need to cut climate warming pollution, and we need to build structures that care for our impacted neighbors here in Durham 
and around the world. What that requires is a community of believers to work side by side, to build structures of of hospitality where we stand. And I commend the work of climate hospitality already happening here at Oak Church. That community garden that Brody shared about, that's providing fresh food for us here and for the community here in Lakewood, and, and good soil for creatures. The rain garden out front that filters rainwater, that's especially important this weekend when there are flash floods, that you're providing resilience for your community in the face of flooding. And I also know that you all practice hospitality with each other, hosting each other in your houses for small groups, and perhaps most importantly, hosting me for potluck today. All of these are practices of climate hospitality. What you're doing is you're creating a community of creatures who can thrive and flourish together, both human and more than human, a community of creatures who care and love for each other. And you know that the work of the church also doesn't end here in Lakewood. Our work as Christians is to be disciples in public spaces, to change the unjust systems and structures of our world. This means, yes, we find ways to change our own lives and the lives of our communities. And it means we ask our leaders to do the same, to change those policies and structures that are destroying our world and our communities and to replace them with ones that create the beloved community. So whether that's engaging in affordable housing advocacy with Durham Can, or whether it's asking our North Carolina congressional representatives to do more on climate action, these too are actions of climate hospitality. They can be an extension of your work of hospitality here at Oak Church. Because in doing these, we ensure that the community of, create, of creatures beyond here, that they're cared for and protected. Nehemiah's vision inspired the people of Jerusalem. And at the same time, he didn't shy away from telling the truth. He said to the people of Jerusalem, you see the trouble that we're in. You see how Jerusalem lies in shambles. And yet that's not all that Nehemiah said. He saw how they could rebuild from the rubble around them, and he invited the people into partnership to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to address the injustices and the suffering of all of our neighbors. So friends, we know the parts of our world are lying in ruin. We know that climate change, that global weirding is burning and flooding places and people we know and love. And like Nehemiah, we must be truth tellers about this reality. We ought to be talking about it with friends and with family. We ought to especially be talking about it here at church where it impacts those we love. But we also know that the rubble is not the end of the story. We know that restoration is possible, that resurrection is possible, and we can be disciples of that living hope. We can see a better world. We can work to create it with our hands. And we can pray that God's grace will help us along the way. Thanks be to God.